relationship with us. Today we wrap up our series on the five solas by looking at the final one, to the glory of God alone. I've really enjoyed this series and I pray that it has been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. This week our text, or for our text, we are back in Isaiah. It feels like over the past year we've been in Isaiah a lot. But, you know, I'm, I'm not complaining. It's, it's a great book. I love this book, and it's been a joy to be back here again this week. This morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 to 8. So if you have your, uh, if you have your, your, uh, your, your Bibles with you, please feel free to, uh, to grab those and to, to look that, that passage up to read along with us. If not, then the, the words are back up here on the screen. But in this chapter... God is going to be speaking to us through his prophet about his servant, about his son, about Jesus. In this text, we read about who Jesus is and about what he will do. And the passage we'll be looking at this morning speaks directly to who gets the credit, who gets the glory for the work of Christ. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 to 8. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant to all people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness." I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. While literary scholars reject any and all theories dealing with an alternative authorship, that has not prevented rumors and conjecture around the true authorship of the great and influential works of Shakespeare. Did someone else actually write his plays and poems? This is the question the 2011 movie Anonymous explores. Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, is a noble with a gift for putting pen to paper with the purpose of telling a story, bringing characters to life, and stirring emotion. But Edward has a problem. Plays in theater are seen as the devil's work by the queen's chief advisor, a Puritan, who is disgusted by the content and messages pushed out through the theaters and their plays, and so... A noble who needs to stay in that particular advisor's good graces is not allowed to be a playwright. Edward's gift for verse is going to waste. His passion is being suppressed until he comes up with a plan. He'll write the plays and someone else will make them public. And who should he choose to pose as the author? One William Shakespeare. And while the movie Anonymous is a work of fiction, we see elements of its premise echoed in the Christian life, a gift given to one who is undeserving. 
In this story, Shakespeare did nothing to deserve the gift he was given. He did not write the stories. He did not come up with the plays. The characters are not figments of, of his whim or fancy. He had no participation whatsoever in their creation. And yet he is the one to which the gift was given. And so it is with us. The walk, the relationship that we have with God is not something that we sought out of our own accord. It's not something that we established. It's not something that we instigated. God established our relationship with Him. If there is any seeking done on our part, it is in response to the call that He, that God, put on our lives. And we could only respond to that call because God enabled us to respond. For as humans, we are depraved. We've inherited our nature from Adam, and that nature is one of depravity. We see Paul lament this depravity in Romans 7, 18 to 19, where we read, Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Mueller writes in his book on doctrinal theology that Paul's lament not only highlights our inability to do what is good, but it also points to the fact that we inevitably do what is evil. Now, we may not like hearing that very much, right? But we know, we know that it's true. We inevitably do what is evil. We cannot do good on our own, so it follows that we cannot pursue or even desire God the ultimate good, on our own. It is not only out of the enabling of the Holy Spirit, or sorry, it is only out of the enabling of the Holy Spirit, it is only out of the working, the empowering of God in our life that we are given the ability to respond to God's call to be part of His family. We do not participate. We do not get any credit. For our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. So how are we doing with that? How does it feel to realize that the only role that we play in the salvation drama is the beggar? who is so used, so accustomed to that gnawing hunger in our belly that we don't even realize that we're hungry until we are given bread that we did not earn or deserve. We don't really like it, do we? We much prefer the idea that we get to play our part, that we have an important role to act out. We want our face on that billboard, man, so that people will know who they are coming to watch. And when they watch, maybe people see how awesome we are, how well we're behaving, how, how good we have become. Maybe they recognize how much work we're putting in. Maybe they understand how hard it is to resist temptation for this long. Maybe they know how tiring it is to memorize all the lines so that I can look and sound the way I'm supposed to look and sound. Look how good I'm doing, we think. Where is my credit? Where is my glory? Typically in the religious drama of life in our own salvation story, we Christians are willing to concede that we aren't the star, but we reason that, hey man, there's room for that like plucky, funny side character. 
And maybe eventually that, that plucky, funny side character ends up stealing the show. Who knows, right? Maybe we steal a little recognition for ourselves, a little glory. Or maybe it's the reverse. Maybe if I'm not able to keep up with all that I'm supposed to be doing, then I'm bringing shame on my faith and my Savior. And so in my flaws and in my sin, I am then tarnishing and stealing away the glory of God. Should you type stealing God's glory into the Google search box, you'll be presented with a series of articles arguing just that point. I paused or I perused a number of them this past week, and each one was basically the same. They told me that I was stealing God's glory if I wasn't living the Christian walk effectively, if I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, if I wasn't at church every week, if I was swearing in public, if I wasn't being the witness God has called me to be, if I was being selfish or proud, then I was stealing God's glory. One author wrote, at any time that we do not direct attention to God instead of ourselves, we are stealing God's glory. This can happen not just through actions and words, but the way we dress and comport or behave ourselves. So let me get this straight. Let me run this thought process back. Logic and popular opinion state that I'm stealing God's glory through how I live. Either I can steal it by being so good or too good, or I can steal it by not being good enough. That I have the potential to steal the show or that I'm tarnishing the majesty, the glory of God when I do not live up to it. And as we continue to kick these cans down the road, the only destination that we can arrive at is that in some way, God's glory hinges on us. For by our sin and our failing, we steal it. And by our good works, we uphold it. Friends, church, this is a lie. Our good works are not awarded with glory, and our failings do not detract from God's glory. But we can see how this thought process is what actually attempts to steal God's glory. For when we act as if we have some role to play in safeguarding, safeguarding God's glory, that we have some participation in our own salvation, we are then, in fact, stealing God's glory, taking some of what belongs to Him for ourselves. For there is nothing that we can do that will diminish the glory of God. There are nights when the moon reflects the light of the sun brighter than others. There are varying reasons for this, but none of them include the sun not shining as brightly. In the same way, just as the sun does not lessen in its brightness, the glory of God is not diminished by our inability, inability to reflect it perfectly or partially or even at all. Our sin does not, cannot lessen the brightness of the glory of God. And by acting like it does, by acting, thinking that we can have any effect on it, any participation in it, that is the moon pretending to be the sun. The depraved creation putting itself in the place of the creator and stealing the glory of God. How often we try to play the thief. We are thieves that are so intent on taking what does not belong to us that we overlooked what has been given to us. Yes, given to us even though we do not deserve it. 
What has been given to us is salvation. What has been given to us is grace through faith in Christ. The gift of grace, God's unmerited favor, the gift of faith, believing what we have not seen and what we cannot fully understand in Christ, the Son of God, the one, the only one who could pay the price for the sin that each of us has committed. Jesus Christ who loves us so much that he drank fully from the cup of wrath. Jesus Christ who took the burden of all our sin, became sin for us and in our place. All that sin that we committed last year and last night and you'll commit today and you'll commit until we take our last breath. Yeah, Jesus took all of it, became all of it for us on the cross and there wrapped in our sin and on account of our sin he was abandoned by God forsaken by his father and there he died the price was paid and three days later he rose from the dead conquering sin and death and giving Christ the victory so that when we have faith in Jesus when we believe that he is who he says he is that he did what he said he did and that he will do what he says he will do we are brought into relationship with God and we are brought into the family of God no longer are we clothed with the filth and the stench of our sin but we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ our filthy rags are taken away and we are given clean and pure robes For by grace and through faith, Christ's righteousness is given to us. And it is by this righteousness that we did not earn or deserve that we can stand before God, forgiven of all the sin that corrupted our lives and in relationship with Him. This is what He has done. This is what He has given. Do we ever find ourselves looking in the mirror and maybe looking around at our other Christian friends or people that come to church with us and think, did God waste that gift on me? On us? Did he give it to the wrong people? One of the characters in the movie Anonymous is Ben Johnson. Johnson is a playwright who has worked and struggled his way to the top of the London theater scene. He is a confidant of, a confidant of, of Edward de Vere, and, and he knows that Edward is giving his work to be made public through William Shakespeare. And he's furious about it. You see, Shakespeare is an actor, but he's a terrible one. On top of that, he's a ruffian and a drunkard. He's an embarrassment to the theater community. And this is the person that is given the gift of Shakespeare's wit and charm and prose? This is the person that De Vere chose? How? How could this be? In this fictional account of Shakespearean authorship, De Vere only had one gift to give. And he gave it to someone who was not worthy. Someone who would turn and betray him, Someone who would not fully appreciate all that he had been given. In the true account of Christ on the cross, Jesus has the best gift to give. And he gives it not to just one person, but to all who will receive it. His desire is to give it to the whole world, that all would come into relationship with him. He died not for one, not for the few, but for the many, for all. He died for me, he died for you, and where De Vere did not realize how Shakespeare would turn on him, Christ knew. 
He knew that we are not worthy of the gift we have been given. He knew that many of us would reject it outright. And he knew that those who would receive it would still hurt him, would still betray him, would still succumb to their sin, and in that sin they would attempt to steal his glory through believing themselves worthy of it or betraying it altogether. And so they would attempt to make themselves comfortable in their jail cells of darkness. He knew all of this, and yet he still gave us the gift. He still died. He still forgives. This is our God. This is the God who is worthy of all the glory. This is the God we see in our passage this morning after he establishes who he is, the one who created the heavens and who formed the earth and all that springs up out of it. After he reinforces just who he is, we get these fantastic lines, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the peoples and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I have declared you righteous, says God. And he continues by saying that he can do that because he's the one that made us righteous. He's the one that has displayed his promise through us, his children. Each of us broken sinners who are part of the family of God are direct examples of God's promise. His covenant in action. He has done what he said he would do. He has saved us. He has brought us into his family and he is the one who has done the work to make all this happen. It's all because of him. He is the one who opens the eyes of the blind, who gives faith to the unseeing. He is the one who frees the captives from the prison of sin that they have gotten so comfortable in. It is God who has done this. It is his work. He is the one who brings us out of darkness. He is the light. And then he continues by emphasizing, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The Lord, the creator, the savior, the keeper of promises, the way, the truth, the life, God, Yahweh, does not yield his glory. His glory does not belong to anyone else. Though he chooses to reveal his glory through his people, his glory does not belong to them. They are a conduit for it, but they are not the owners of it. Our God does not worship any other gods. He has no idols. There is nothing above him to which he yields his praise. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one true God and the salvation that we have through Christ is to His glory alone. He is the architect behind the plan and He is the only one who had the power to make it happen. Do you feel unworthy? Good. Because you are. Bask in the truth. That your, that my, that our unworthiness has not chased our God away. He knows your failures. He knows your flaws. He knows your weaknesses. He knows everything about you that you wish nobody knew. And he still loves you. He has still forgiven you. 
He has still made a way for you to be in relationship with Him, for we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. To God be the glory. Amen.